Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show, Tuesday, January 17th. I have a lot to discuss today, several news stories. We begin, though, with Davos. What's happening in Davos? The annual meeting of the World Economic Forum is taking place today. This seems to be the first year that this meeting has taken place, that it has received this level of attention within the U.S. political sphere particularly on the right wing. Uh, This meeting has gone on for many, many years, founded in the 1970s by none other than its current head, Klaus Schwab, who began this meeting. And I think that it's first important to lead off with what this is. What is this meeting in Davos? What exactly takes place there? It's been equated by many on the right to the Bilderberg Group meeting, which has taken place for many years as well. Of course, the big difference with Davos from Bilderberg is that it's a very open meeting. Bilderberg is a rather secretive meeting. They don't have press. They don't allow people in. There's not much reporting on what goes on inside. And the Davos meeting of the World Economic Forum is exactly the opposite. They allow the media in. They have big media junkets. CNBC broadcasts uh, live interviews out of Davos nonstop, as does Bloomberg and Fox Business. It is a finance-centric conference, certainly. Uh, It is a, a conference which leans towards finance. Of course, you have CEOs that come in who are the heads of other major corporations like Chevron, I saw their CEO was there. You have uh, world leaders come in in terms of heads of state, lawmakers go there. Usually they're more intermittent. They don't generally attend every year, but they sometimes do. Uh, Trump was the first president to uh, sort of openly boycott the summit a number of years back, he just couldn't stand the level of anti-Trump nonsense that was going on there. He didn't feel there was any reason to go. And so he very publicly skipped out on it. Now, other presidents had missed out because they had other things happening, other things going on. But Trump publicly boycotted it. So it's a finance-centric conference. It is a drinking club. Uh, it takes place, of course, in Davos, Switzerland, as the name suggests, which is a kind of a ski resort town. Uh, these wealthy elites that arrive at the conference and some not so wealthy kind of media elites that also attend, uh, their employers paying for their ticket, of course, uh, often fly in straight to Davos on private jets. Uh, It's hard to overstate just how exclusive this conference is vis-a-vis the price to attend. The price to attend the conference is tremendous. And in fact, it just went up this year. I saw a story in the Financial Times about how Bill Browder, kind of a former hedge fund manager that was investing in Russia, uh, his business partner, uh, Sergei Magnitsky, was jailed by the Russians for turning on Putin, put in a gulag, uh, killed. Uh, That's where the Magnitsky Act, a set of anti-Russian sanctions came out of. Bill Browder made a big brouhaha about not showing up at the Davos conferences here because they raised the price of the tickets from what was $70,000 to attend, all the way up to $250,000 to attend. That is from Bill Browder, and at $250,000, he couldn't do it. Now, you have to bear in mind, it's uh, $70,000 or now $250,000 to attend, but then you're flying in there. The travel costs, especially if you're on a private jet, are tremendous. 
the hotel rooms are very expensive. I did see that at some of the lesser exclusive but still five-star resorts in the area, you can get a room tonight for about $800. Uh, so not as expensive as you might think. Of course, the kind of main uh, power names, the, the most exclusive of the hotels there are completely sold out, as would be expected. And so you have to imagine this is a conference in which it is so expensive to attend that, that, that then by definition, it becomes very exclusive. There are very few networking events that are even worth the, the paper that the, that the ticket is printed on. Very few. In fact, if you stand up a conference in general, what you will find is that it's going to be an outsized number of people who are looking for connections but don't really have anything to offer. And then you'll have a smaller number of people who actually have something to offer. At this conference, given the price, given the history, given the locale, the gorgeous locale and the skiing attractions, and of course, many uh, very high-end prostitutes are flown in, uh, in keeping with the concert or the conference, uh, you have a lot of high-profile attendees. I mean, to, to give you a sense of the, uh, of the level to which it's highbrow, somebody like an Anthony Scaramucci, who... Let's just say the last time I saw that he was attending there, he was running a fund uh, that was the whole company was worth 400 million. And I think he was managing a few billion dollars in his hedge fund, Skybridge Capital. At the time, it was really a fund of funds. He's kind of restructured since he would be considered kind of the bottom rung of who would be somebody who might attend that conference. Now, I'm sure there are others, but that's kind of the bottom rung. So you have to imagine if you're in the capital allocation business, if you're a publicly traded company CEO or CFO or, or C-suite style executive, uh, if you're somebody raising money, if you're an investment banker, um, a whole host of different groups centered around finance, this conference is the place to be. I mean, imagine the, the, the level of connections that you can make by putting all of these people in the same room at the same time. I can hardly think of a of a better kind of situation for networking within that world than this conference. I think it is the most exclusive conference. Now, there are people that get very bent out of shape about the World Economic Forum, about Klaus Schwab. It doesn't help Klaus Schwab's cause that he has this very kind of old school uh, German accent that really it doesn't even quite sound german it sounds it, it's it's very frightening sounding it's very uh movie character lex luther kind of evil sounding uh accent and way of speaking in his old age it's very similar to the way that george soros now speaks in fact very slow very methodical and with this exotic sounding accent now in the last several years, and the American right wing has only caught on to this very, very recently, but in the last, say, 10 years, I think it's it's safe to say 10 years, let's say 2012 to be safe. So 10, 11 years. They have promoted a number of what were previously just considered to be PC ideas at this conference. So they began talking about climate change, quote unquote, in a serious way. Uh, in 2013, I followed this conference for a long time. 2013, uh, they began talking 
a lot about ESG. Most people on the American right wing have only heard about ESG in the last year or less. And why, I have to say why, you know, the average person would give a damn about ESG investment profiles, ESG mutual funds, ESG uh, focused hedge funds, why the average person would even care. What in the world it would even matter to them, I don't know. But there are a huge number of people out there because Tucker Carlson told them to. They now care about ESG. Um, it's now something that they that they take serious umbrance with. And obviously, the Fox News brass takes serious umbrance with ESG because it prevents writ large some mutual fund money from flowing into the stock of Fox News's parent company and perhaps other companies owned by Rupert Murdoch because they don't like Fox News because of blah, 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 they're right wing, this, that, or the other. And so they take issue with it. So there are people on the right that for, for one reason or other want you to be outraged about ESG. Now, the fact about ESG is that it's a foolish investment strategy. It doesn't make a lot of sense to carry out. I think the only reason you might care about ESG is if you have pension money that's in an ESG kind of fund, unbeknownst to you, and you think that it's not going to perform terribly well. Of course, ESG itself is, broadly speaking, a scam. I mean, it's it's something in which there's something known as greenwashing, all of that. This isn't a segment on ESG, though. I'm just saying all of these politically correct sort of theories uh, were being propounded at Davos circa 10 years ago, very publicly. It's not a secret meeting. There's nothing secret about it. The people get on a stage. They talk about it. All of their talks are broadcast. You can watch them online. They publish them themselves. It's not a secret kind of club or anything like that. Uh, they do a lot of live news hits out of Davos. So Davos writ large now is a, is a meeting which represents a lot of the ideas, at least the people that speak there for the most part, represent a lot of the ideas which, of course, I and, and all of you watching, or many of you watching, take issue with. We don't agree that uh, globalization is going to continue at pace. Even if we were a fan of globalization, it's not going to continue. The problem with that is that China is going to have fewer than 600 million people by the year 2030. I mean, you're not going to have the workforces in the places that you need them to sustain that kind of globalization. And no, you're not going to move all that to Africa. That's just crazy. So we disagree with a lot of what these people say, but having a meeting like this where they get on the record and they say it publicly is a powerful thing. So we should not discourage this conference. We should not discourage Christopher Ray from going to the conference as it's been reported he is doing to speak. Uh, we should not discourage establishment type politicians like Dan Crenshaw from going to the conference and speaking. It's something that, that we should encourage and we should be happy that they're going on the record and hanging out in what they feel is a safe space for their globalist ideas and promoting them. So all I mean to say with this is that this is a effectively a drinking club. It's a ski outing that all of these rich elites go on uh, in Switzerland. Uh, it's a gorgeous place. Uh, I'd be thrilled to attend a conference like this. I don't figure I'll ever be invited, and nor would I be paying uh, $250,000 a ticket to attend, at least not anytime soon. Uh, so that's what this is. 
It's not something to to lose sleep over. I don't understand why people are so bent out of shape about Davos. Looking at this report here from Axios titled Davos Isn't Dead Yet, uh, kind of sums it up, talking a little bit about the guest list this year. I guess Klaus Schwab had some health issue, wasn't able to attend. He's been having some health issues. He's old. George Soros, the same, just too old to do the flying in and, and all of that. Uh, but you have uh, attending this meeting, uh, 50 heads of state, 56 finance ministers, 19 central bank governors, more than 600 CEOs. The closest that I ever get to attending a meeting like this is when the International Monetary Fund slash the World Bank, they hold a big conference in D.C. here every year, um, usually at the Willard. And I will go to that and hobnob around because, you know, I don't really care about the speaking events. I, I just go and, and chit chat and sometimes I drum up some business and uh, for the lobbying business and all of that. That's kind of the closest I get to this. You you do get the same elements of finance ministers leaning more towards uh, third world countries, but also uh, kind of first world countries as well. So that's who's attending. Uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp was speaking at this. People have thrown his name out there as a presidential primary contender from the GOP side. I think he's got the same issue that Ron DeSantis has. Ron DeSantis is five foot eight, as I understand it, and Brian Kemp is five foot seven. He also has a little bit of a parochial accent, a Georgia accent, which is not going to fare well. It's not a deal breaker, but it, it doesn't fare super well for the presidency these days. Uh, many of the usual suspects are there. Axios reports, including the CEOs of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs just had very disappointing earnings driven by losses in their Marcus uh, consumer lending arm, which is kind of going bust. Uh, European Central Bank Chief Christian Lagarde. Uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, or Gutierrez, I guess is how he spells it in his case. Uh, one of the more surprising attendees is Colombia's new leftist president, Gustavo Petro. Well, if he's going to be any kind of a leftist, he's going to need to work out loan guarantees, welfare handouts for his country, because his leftism is only going to work for so long. He's going to have to meet with people there that are going to be willing to uh, come in as investment bankers, help that country restructure their debt when it goes bust. So even though he's a leftist and a former Marxist rebel, as they point out here, uh, he's going to need to go there. Uh, new Philippines president Bongbong Marcos uh, is there as well. New leaders often visit Davos for a coming out party, perhaps because of the forum's stage uh, guarantees a high level audience without any awkward questions about the Marcos family's corruption, for instance. That's what Axios writes here. Uh, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva won't be in attendance at Davos. He will instead attend COP27. Uh, that makes sense. When you are a leader that is under as much suspicion as he is, it's usually wise not to leave the country. One of the things that you see in third world countries is that if you have a leader and there's some controversy about that leader and whether or not they should in fact be in office or there's a coup brewing, if he were to just say leave Brazil to go attend this conference, there's a non-zero chance. Maybe there's some reasonable chance that somebody else flies back down and says, hey, I'm in charge now. 
And the whole continuity of government thing that is very much worked out here in the United States is not so is not so uh, sturdy in many of these third world countries. The UN uh, annual climate conference is now arguably a bigger draw for prime ministers and executives. Uh, Axios reports. There's other competition as well. George Soros, uh, they write whose dinner party was a staple on the Davos calendar, is skipping this year in favor of next month's Munich Security Forum. Now, gosh, the Munich Munich Security Forum is another conference I'd love to attend. That conference is more focused on uh, military equipment. So the way that the Munich Security Forum works, that's going to be one to pay attention to, especially this year, because you're going to have all the defense ministers show up. They have sort of a conference in one wing that is sort of people in suits and they have some generals and they're hobnobbing and chit-chatting and speaking on the stage, kind of like Davos. But then generally they have accompanying conferences kind of next door where they actually showcase the equipment, the fighter jets, the tanks, the rifles, the lasers, the all of the actual technology. They have an actual kind of an arms showcase generally or multiple kind of attached. So that's going to be one to pay attention to. Arguably that conference would be more relevant to, to what I do. Uh, in the lobbying space. So that one's coming up. Uh, Several CEOs and executives who did not make the trip tell Axios that the guest list is still a huge draw. Uh, So they're talking about this, uh, Ernst Young, all of this. Axios writes, the bottom line, Davos is a self-perpetuating phenomenon. As long as the global elites keep coming, global elites will keep coming to meet them. And that is very true. So... I'm going here to the chat. Just any questions on this? Jacob, why does the Netherlands want to remove their farms and farmers? Uh, It's just a climate cult nonsense. I mean, it just comes down to that. People that believe crazy things about nitrogen and fertilizer washout and all the rest. The Netherlands is one of the, you know, great countries in Europe in terms of their food output versus energy usage versus water usage. I mean, because of what you have there with the the canals, the water table, the silt that comes up, it is one of the few places um, in Europe that achieves the sort of productivity on the on the farming side that that we see here in the United States, in parts of the United States, in the Mississippi River Valley and and other parts of the US. So that is, um, I, I you know, it, it really is crazy, but that's what they do. Um, in 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. Look, this is one idea that, that was promoted at the World Economic Forum in keeping with their promotion of uh, apps to rent this and services and this whole idea that we're going to shift completely into a service economy, which we have now done in the U.S. That's to talk up their books. That's one of the big things they do here is, you know, they have investments and let's say they're invested in a solar company. They'll come in and just promote the hell out of solar and say solar is the only thing to, to use and nothing else works and we have to go to solar. And they're talking up their position. They're talking up their book in hopes of getting the value higher and higher. So that's something that's taking place. Uh, Musk responded to an article uh, titled Davos is a grift and a cult, but it's also a bid for global domination saying, quote, WEF kind of reminds me kind of. Uh, kind of give me the willies, though. I'm sure everything is fine. Well, that's somebody in the chat there. I, I don't know. Price of eggs, I'm not sure. I want to go to this report here. Not sure why the price of eggs is crazy. I should look into that, I guess. I, I just haven't. Um, 
here's a, it's some kind of supply chain issue. Uh, probably avian flu went through or something. I, I have to check though. I'm just not sure. Uh, we talked about that situation down in uh, Texas, in the Houston area. Uh, the Good Samaritan stepping in and stopping the robber, killing him. Well, now black activists are demanding that the Good Samaritan be charged. Listen to this report here uh, from a local station. It's the shooting that was caught on camera and made national headlines. The defense attorney for that customer says he feared for his life and acted in self-defense. But community leaders say he used excessive deadly force. Our Rochelle Turner live from the restaurant on South Gessner where a press conference just wrapped up. Rochelle? See on community activists Quanell X and Dr. Candace Matthews with the Rainbow Push Coalition says they don't condone the actions or behavior of the suspect who went inside this restaurant behind me and demanded money from customers. But they said the patron who shot him went from law abiding to breaking the law and they believe he should be pressed with charges. Now take a look. This is surveillance video from the accident at the Ranchito Taqueria number four which shows the suspect, 30-year-old Eric Eugene Washington, running into the restaurant, pointing a fake gun and demanding money from customers. As Washington is leaving the store, a patron shoots him several times. He continues to fire shots and even throws a beverage on Washington before he leaves the scene. Quano X says once the customer shot Washington the first time, he was no longer a threat and his actions went way too far. He had a right to defend himself. He had a right to protect himself. He had a right to use deadly force. But he went beyond that. And he stood over that young man and pumped bullets after bullets after bullets into him. That's overkill. That's no longer self-defense. So I believe that the Harris County District Attorney's Office should make sure that a grand jury returns a criminal indictment. Now, Washington was convicted of aggravated robbery in 2015 and sentenced to 15 years in prison. He got parole in 2021 before last month, being charged with aggravated assault of a family member. Records show he was out. So you see this even in Texas now, you have people being being sentenced to 15 years in 2015, and then they're let out after only six years. So even in Texas, you have this situation where these violent thugs are being turned back out. And Texas is thought to have a tough system, but apparently not. On bond during the robbery, and this is all information the grand jury will look at. But Quano X says the defense attorney will have to prove he was a continuous threat. You did not know his criminal history before you shot him. You did not know his name before you shot him. You did not know who he was before you killed him. You did not know his past before you killed him. You didn't have a chance to look up his criminal history and decide to use deadly force. So that don't work. And Quanell X adds that the family of Washington is struggling. They are angry about the level of force that was used. They were supposed to be here this afternoon, but they were just too upset. We will continue to stay on top of this story for now. Reporting live in Southwest Houston, I'm Rochelle Turner, KPRC 2 News. So you have the family uh, coming out, disagreeing with the level of uh, force, and you have... Uh, you know, you have these black activists showing up and saying it was too much force. 
we went over the incident itself on the last show. I mean, there's questions about should he have kept shooting? Should he have allowed one shot to be the only shot? Uh, it, 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 there's questions there. But the bottom line is, I mean, in terms of overkill, what, what do you propose charging him with then? Defacing a dead body? I mean, if your argument is that he was already dead, then he's already dead. But what we see in many cases, as I discussed, is that you have situations, say, at convenience stores in armed robberies like this, where the store owner gets to a firearm, they shoot the robber, the robber appears to be incapacitated, but then the robber manages to get off another shot, sometimes killing, sometimes injuring, maiming uh, the store owner or others in the store. And... Um, so that does happen. It does happen. Now, you know, was it a perfect shooting? There's questions about that. But uh, all around, I, I think that it's it's very clear this person's allowed to defend themselves in this situation. This robber um, could have been very reasonably believed to be a threat to uh, this person sitting down and others inside the restaurant. And... Uh, from the standpoint of, of self-defense, it's it's very much a, a good shooting. The follow-up shots, there can be some questions, but uh, you're rarely going to get a, a perfect use of self-defense. And of course, the criminals are not held to a perfect standard. Uh, this person was charged with aggravated robbery. Of course, for those of you that don't know, that means that somebody was seriously injured in, in the robbery that he had previously committed. Uh and then his family saying they disagree with it. Well, he's already on bail in a charge for injuring them, beating them down, apparently, in a violent incident. So this robber truly uh, embodies the term super predator. I never understood why the Trump campaign wanted to pull back on that term called super predator. It was a term that was a very brilliant term that was come out with by Hillary Clinton to describe these people where... If they are anywhere but besides the, the, the walls of a prison, they are just a, a threat to the public. I mean, just a massive threat to the public. They will kill you and injure you. We saw another instance of this just recently in the last several days. Uh, this Alabama basketball star, actually, he, he comes out of the D.C. area. D.C. area has been famous for basketball, basically two areas I've ever lived in my life, Southern California and in D.C. are both major hubs of, of basketball talent over the years. Uh, but uh, Darius Miles is his name. He's playing at Alabama. He's apparently a star there. He's 21 years old. And the story goes that over the weekend, he gets out of his car or he's in the car. He's talking to another woman in the car in some parking lot. She doesn't want to talk to him. He's not happy about that. So he gets out of the car. It's a 23-year-old kind of black single mother that's next to him. So he gets out of his car and uh, pumps 12 rounds into her. I mean, you know, just mag dumps her uh, in the middle of uh, some parking lot. Others running away from the scene in this college area near the University of Alabama. So-called student athlete. Of course, that concept is a big joke. There are a few schools out there in which when they say student athlete, they actually mean it. And those people could actually qualify to go to that school without being athletes. Uh, Wake Forest is one that comes to mind in that regard, where they're actually academically rigorous, even with the athletes. Um, 
But for the most part, this whole concept of student athletes is a complete joke. Very few of these people even speak English at a functional level or read or write at a functional level. They're, they're illiterate for the most part. Uh, so we see more of this, uh, more and more of this kind of uh, violent, out-of-control crime. This person took a stand to it. Um, thankfully for him, he is Hispanic. If it were a white man uh, that had defended himself, I think there's a very good chance that you would have massive riots. There's a very good chance that he would be charged immediately without any use of a grand jury, that he'd be arrested, that he'd be not given bail himself in the exact same circumstances or even in slightly better use of self-defense circumstances. So as I often say, the best methodology for avoiding all this is, is, is avoidance. I mean, you, you have to stay out of this. You should not be at restaurants in the inner city. You should not be anywhere near this kind of riffraff that, that takes place. You just shouldn't be anywhere near it. You shouldn't be within a mile of it, within two miles of it, within five miles of it, if you can avoid it. That's your best bet because there are so many cases like this Maybe you're lucky enough to be able to defend yourself, and maybe you're not. But the best path is to just stay the hell away from all of the riffraff. And uh, sometimes that's not an option. Sometimes it comes to you. But if you can avoid it, that's the best method. Uh, Mr. Smith here says in the chat, desecration of a corpse at a, at, at a most, uh, at most, I think he means to say. Um, a man shoves a gun in my face. I have a fair idea of his criminal history. Yeah, well, you have as much of an idea about his criminal history as you need uh, if he's shoving a gun in your face. That is all that's relevant, frankly, of course. Um, and likely there is a, a big, giant history. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson didn't feel like giving his equal 2517 speech again. Uh, somebody writes here, Daryl Issa was a surprise. At the World Economic Forum or what? I I guess maybe so. Um, although he's been a kind of a big time establishment guy for a long time. Uh, he's out of San Diego. He's a member for a long time. Very, very rich guy. Uh, worth about a, uh, just under a billion dollars for the last 20 years. Made a bunch of money in technology, as I recall, or something like that. Um, what would happen if the West adopted fiscal policies such as in the Middle East? No loans or business that aren't haram, no usury, no complicated derivatives market on commodities. Well, that would just be foolish. I mean, the reason that the West is the hub for all financial markets or that the United States, frankly, is the hub is because we have transparency, we have liquidity, and we have recourse in our markets. I, I take regulation out of it. I just say we have recourse. Um. If you make an investment here, you you have reasonable transparency about the type of investment, the company's financials or, or whatever you're dealing with. You have liquidity. We have these big, giant, deep markets that grow more liquid uh, and, and the transaction costs in terms of the bid-ask spread grow smaller every year. And you have recourse in any number of settings, whether it be court or arbitration or what have you. So that's why we're the center of the world. And and by the way, I mean, the Saudis use our derivatives on oil or they use derivatives traded in Europe. They use derivatives. Of course, like anyone else, they have a need to hedge uh, their oil holdings and to build in price certainty across time by using futures contracts and swaps and options. Uh, and so 
I think that would be totally foolish to adopt those kind of, first of all, it's not going to happen, but if it, if it were to happen, it would be incredibly foolish. I think. Can you talk about the fake fentanyl crisis? I remember you sending out an email about it before. No, what I was just saying about fentanyl is this, is that the fentanyl that comes in, uh, even from China, is rarely over 20% pure. And so when you see these press releases that say, in the man's glove box, we found enough fentanyl to kill 3 million people. Well, no, they didn't, obviously. And if, in fact, it were enough fentanyl to kill 3 million people, how would he ever sell it all? Who would he sell it to? Some little guy with his glove box, who would he sell it to? What they do is that they they find some white powder, the white powder or the yellow powder or the pills or the whatever, they test positive for fentanyl. That is, in fact, the active ingredient. But they don't say, oh, by the way, it was only 5% pure, whereas, say, the pharmaceutical version would have to be at least uh, generally 98.9% pure or 99.2, depending on the locale, even for generic around the world. So they don't tell you that. And so if you if you look at the actual purity of the fentanyl that comes in, even the quote unquote pure stuff from the super labs in China, it's never, hardly ever over 20% pure. They had, out of all the busts they made in calendar year 2021, they had like single digits. They had like eight that were over 20% from China. These are the China pure white, you know, super labs. Now, the stuff that comes from Mexico is anywhere between 3% and 7% pure. Once in a blue moon, they'll get something that's like 10 or 12. And so when you look at fentanyl, the, the, the reality of it is that it's not any more powerful than kind of old school, what they would call China white heroin. It's not. Now, the difference is and where this becomes you know, still relevant and harmful and all of that is that while it is no more pure than old school China white heroin, what it is, is it's much more plentiful and much cheaper than China white heroin. Because in the era when China white heroin was coming into the United States, we actually enforced the drug laws. Yes, we actually enforced drug laws. I mean, if you were in San Francisco and you were shooting up fentanyl on the street, you would be arrested for uh, possession, you would be arrested for public use of, of the drug. And the only way that you'd be out of jail um, would be if you were put into a program. They had a program in California. And I remember this, my dad practicing criminal defense in California growing up around this and the business my mom's in, it was, it was, it was called the drug court. It was called drug court. And they had this around the country, but you were not going, you, you had two choices, drug program or jail. One of the options was not just get released two hours later with maybe a summons and we'll see you again in three hours when you're doing the exact same thing. That wasn't one of the options anywhere in the country. And so when you had the drug laws actually being enforced from the street level user all the way up to, you know, the, the highest levels, there was a difference. And so China white heroin was not nearly as plentiful, not nearly as available as fentanyl is with the equivalent kind of strength today. And so like, I remember uh, an old clip from Howard Stern when Artie Lang was kind of a, a co-host contributor on that show, and he was uh, using heroin, and he would talk about how he would have to drive from New York City to Delaware, because that was the only place he knew where to score some China white heroin. So it was hard to come by because of the degree of enforcement. Now, in much of this country... Drugs are either legal or they're decriminalized. The drug laws are not enforced. 
And, and we've, we've talked about this before. And so that's why, you know, you have the problem you have. That's why fentanyl is as plentiful as it is. Um, and people say, well, China's at war with us. That's why we have fentanyl. Well, I mean, let's think about this for a second. Let's say China wanted to weaken the United States. How exactly would would China weaken the United States by flooding us with a chemical which dramatically increases the speed and rate at which America's, for the most part, with exceptions, of course, as always, but on average, increases the speed and the rate at which America's most unproductive, costly, and worthless people die. You know, tell me how exactly that weakens America. Now, people will say that's insensitive. Oh, there was a story about a 13-year-old in town and they thought they were taking a prescription drug. Yes, of course there are those stories and they're tragic. But for the most part, if fentanyl is anywhere near as deadly as people say, and it's not as deadly as people say, of course, because like we talked about, the purities are much lower. How would China sending us a drug that basically kills off street bums, how would that weaken our country? I mean, if I wanted to weaken the country, I'd send us TikTok. Oh, wait, China does that. If I wanted to weaken the United States, I would send over um, to promote you know, Bitcoin. I'd set up an operation like Binance. Oh, wait, China does that. Um, if I wanted to weaken the United States, uh, I would buy out the United States' most aspirational, beautiful, and timeless property out from under them. That's what China does. They send over millionaires by the boatload or by the plane load. It's one of the things I talked about recently on Telegram. I said, you know, for the most part, the United States is much better positioned in the world than China. We can feed ourselves with the food we produce here several times over. In fact, if we reorganized California's agriculture a little bit and planted fewer, say, almonds and planted more kind of staple crops, California could feed our country. We can fuel our own country. Most countries can't do that. We can power the country. We can fuel the country. We have a high-end manufacturing base. We're well-positioned. We're much better positioned than China is. Make no mistake. But one thing that China outranks us in because of the way that that system capitalized when it opened up to capitalism, one of the things that they really beat us on is number of liquid millionaires. So... I don't mean millionaire in terms of they have some stock over here in a company that's a private company and maybe someday they can sell it and it'll be worth this much on paper or, you know, oh, if I count the value of their primary residence, then their net worth would be this high. And so, tech no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. If you travel to Southern California and it's the same in Northern California, but Southern California highlights it better and you travel to Irvine, place I used to live, I used to live in Irvine myself or any number of other cities, and I could name 10 or 15 in Southern California that have this en masse. You have a person that fits this profile. Family comes over. They buy a house or two. They prefer new construction because of the feng shui, blah, 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 you know, good omens, bad omens, all of that uh, superstition that they're into. 
they buy a new house, whether it costs them 800 grand or it costs them 2 million, somewhere in that range, they buy it cash when they show up. They buy a couple of brand new cars, um, nice cars. I mean, $100,000, $130,000 cars, you know, a Porsche Cayenne and a BMW M5 or something. That's in the driveway. And they have at least $2 million of liquid cash in the bank. Yes, in the bank. And before you go, oh, FDIC, it's in money market accounts, okay? They're not idiots. It's in a money market account. It's in, you know, marketable T-bills effectively in the money market account is what it's actually in. So the, the, the FDIC thing is not an issue. But, but $2 million in cash or cash equivalents. And it could be as high as ten. And I know because I used to manage money for some of these people in California. I used to run a little, basically it ended up being a multifamily office for a couple of these Chinese families. And we'd go over their finances together. And these you've never heard of these people. They don't run any businesses in California. They, nobody really knows what they do. They don't actually really have any jobs. But they show up in the U.S. And somehow or other, they have $8 million in cash. $10 million in cash. They'll have a small position in the market relative to their net worth of say 2 million bucks, a million bucks, a million and a half dollars, if that's kind of the numbers you're looking at. And China has these people by the tens of millions, whether they're over there or they're over here. There's probably a million of them in California alone. There's probably a million of them in California. Oh, by the way, many of them are not U.S. citizens. So when they open their brokerage account at Interactive Brokers, they check tax exempt. So they get to enjoy the gains of our stock market without the capital gains taxes involved. Isn't that nice? Do they pay the taxes over in China on it? Uh, well, depending on their status in China, what province they're from, et cetera, they don't have capital gains tax at all. So no is the answer. So anyway, folks, it's it, that's one area where China beats us. And, and this is not a story that's talked about. Most people don't know this. I'm just trying to get this through and, and kind of get this point across here so that you understand the nature of, of what, we're, what we're dealing with. They have tens of millions, maybe over 100 million liquid millionaires, truly liquid millionaires, meaning their life depended on it and they have to send $2 million cash somewhere within 24 hours, let's say, or 72 hours if it's a Friday night, they can do it. They can write that check and it will clear. They can send that wire. Very rare for Americans. Even when you see people that have, you know, really high-end lifestyles in America, so often it's 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 a matter of high churn. You know, they, they make 200 grand a month and they spend 190 grand a month. A lot of, you know, normal kind of native-born Americans who, who live that way in a place like Orange County, California. But if they needed to, boom, blast off $3 million tomorrow, could they do it? Uh, it'd probably be tied up all over the place is what you'd find. And I know that from, from the lobbying business as well because you interface with th that, at least on the Americans. The Chinese don't really pay for lobbying. They don't use it, to, use it typically. They don't have any reason for it. But... Um, that's what happens. Okay, let's talk about this pistol brace ban. I was just talking about how the Fifth Circuit decision might uh, mean you don't have to worry so much about that. And then on Friday afternoon, the ATF and the Department of Justice come out with this ruling 
saying that they are in fact banning pistol braces and that people have 60 days to do a couple of things. One of the options is you could lengthen the barrel on your AR pistol to be over 16 inches. That's one option. Another option uh, is that you could destroy the gun in whole. Another option is that you could turn it in to the ATF, the entire thing. Another option is that you could leave everything as it is, remove the brace, and just have the buffer tube if it's that kind of situation, or just have the pistol grip if it's you know, a non-kind of AR platform that doesn't have a buffer tube, which is how they came out originally. I, I recall when they, these things were first coming out, they were these goofy things typically. You'd see like a, when I was a kid in, in, in California, you'd see like a, it'd be like an AR-15 from like, I'm trying to think who made these for the most part, like stag arms. And it would have like a six inch barrel and it would just have the buffer tube. And it's like, well, what good is this thing? Half the time it was the barrel was too short to even stabilize the rounds. They'd keyhole right out the end and have a huge amount of blast and they weren't reliable. And it was, uh, they were goofy things. And what happened was that, you know, basically this, this whole AR pistol brace thing is a loophole. Let's, let's get real about it. How many people are sticking their arms through the little hole and then holding it out like that because, you know, it helps them stabilize it as they fire it like a pistol? Very, very few is the answer. Okay, let's be frank about this. But before we go out there and say that it was just a loophole and they closed the loophole, let's recall that this wasn't something that people just exploited. People know better than to do that. Um, as, As early as 2012, the companies who manufactured these AR-15 pistol braces, and that's what they basically were for primarily, but then they've been expanded to other weapon systems that have shorter barrels than 16 inches, but are traditionally rifle-type platforms or fire rifle rounds. Uh, one of the things you know that 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 people did is they they asked permission. The companies asked permission of the ATF in 2012, and and the ATF said that's fine. Yes, you have permission. So they've allowed them for for over a decade. One data point says there are as many as anywhere between 10 and 40 million of these out there among the American public. Now, some people own multiple. Of course, many people do, but they're out there. So those are your options. The other option is, and the, the option that the ATF is sort of presenting as the primary option, is that you can go through the steps to register Uh, that device, either put a stock on it, leave the brace on it, register it as a short-barreled rifle. Now, registering it as a short-barreled rifle basically means you're filing what is called an ATF Form 1 to manufacture a short-barreled rifle is is kind of what you're saying, to to make one. Uh, Along with that comes an FBI spec fingerprint card you have to send in, um, a passport photo or a couple copies of a passport photo maybe, Um, you know, the actual ATF Form 1, I believe that they're waiving the $200 payment that is typically associated with this process. And remember, it's been $200 since 1934. And so in 1934, $200 was worth, say, $3,400. I looked this up. Meanwhile, at the time, an average silencer cost $7 or $8. So it was meant to be prohibitively expensive. Over time, they haven't increased the $200, so it's become sort of tolerable by the public. And so... Uh, you'd have to fill that out. 
one of the things you'd have to do is you'd have to have an engraving of the lower receiver to a certain spec, to a certain depth, with your name and your address on it. Now, you can do it kind of on the chamfering of the magwell if you like. It can be kind of small, but it has to be a certain depth. It has to be done. You have to send pictures in to prove that you've done this. So it's a really sophisticated, um, complicated process in terms of registration. Um, and then at some point, they will send back to you a tax stamp. Now, if they're actually embarking on doing this, the wait times normally for these Form 1s could be anywhere between four and six weeks. Form 4s were a lot longer. They were, say, you know, a year to two lately uh, from, what I've, from what I've been told, from what I've seen in the reports. And uh, so that's kind of what's happening. But if all of these people are doing this, those wait times that, are, that were four to six weeks are going to go up massively. I don't, I don't know how they could ever plan to even process, say, even two million of these out of the 10 to 40 million. So that's what's happening. I think that, number one, this is very unlikely to hold up in the courts. Very, very unlikely. I'm not giving you legal advice in terms of what to do here. You can make your own determinations there or consult with counsel. Obviously, this is not the setting to, to do that. I'm not in a position to do that. This regulation isn't relevant to me in any way, shape, or form, of course. Um, so that's that's what's happening out there. Now, in terms of the the political fallout, the the judicial fallout of this, I think it's likely that this will not hold up in the courts the same way that the ban on bump stocks didn't hold up in the courts. This is not a law that was passed by Congress. It was simple rulemaking by the ATF, the ATF deciding that they're making a new rule and you're going to follow it or else go to jail. And this is something that, that this agency in particular has abused over the years to a tremendous degree, where one day they say this is OK, the next day they say it's not. The court strikes it down, you know, they challenge it. The court strikes it down again, they say, OK, they relent. And then maybe they go after it again, even though the court struck it down. And so this is something that's unlikely to hold up in the courts. I think that people are going to be able to move it through the courts very quickly because of the 60-day grace period and the imminentness of that uh, that the ATF has set out. So very unlikely to make it through the courts. There's another avenue as well to temporarily delay this that a, that, that a report in Breitbart pointed out called the Congressional Review Act. Uh, that's another path. This report from Breitbart says the CRA was put into place in the 1990s as part of Speaker Newt Gingrich's contract with America. It grants Congress the ability to review a major rule and vote to block the implementation or effectiveness of the rule. The U.S. Government Accountability Office explains the CRA uh, thusly, quote, the CRA allows Congress to review major rules issued by federal agencies before the rules take effect. Now, the problem is this rule has sort of taken effect, some would argue, but that maybe it hasn't because of the 60-day grace period. Congress may also disapprove new rules resulting in the rules having no force or effect. One of the characteristics that allows a rule to be considered major is if it carries $100 million or more in annual cost. Uh, in announcing the passage of their final stabilizer brace rule, the ATF points out this rule is projected to have an effect of over $100 million on the economy in at least one year of the final rule. The U.S. Government Accountability Office explains, quote, the CRA allows Congress to review major rules issued by agencies. Okay, so this is um, kind of the situation here. Will Congress have the gumption to do this? Uh, will they manage to get a vote through striking down the rule? I see that as unlikely given how bad they've been on this in the past. Even in 2017, 
when Republicans had a much more significant majority in Congress, you had something known as the Hearing Protection Act, which would have passed federal deregulation of suppressors slash silencers, whatever you prefer to call them. Both terms are correct. And uh, Paul Ryan sort of killed that bill after the Las Vegas shooting for whatever reason, even though silencers had nothing to do with the Las Vegas shooting. Paul Ryan folded on that, of course. So is Congress going to be effective in countering this? No, I think likely that this is going to end up in the courts. I mean, you look at what Texas said in the Fifth Circuit ruling uh, just last week. I mean, the day before they released this about bump stocks and their ruling in bump stocks arguably applies to this. I mean, why they would think that the ruling that, no, you're not going to make up new federal laws that aren't passed by Congress and say this is illegal now and charge people with crimes punishable by 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine is uh, is just not appropriate. That's what the Fifth Circuit said. And then they just do this anyway. They, they just pretend as though that ruling never, in fact, came down. So again, I'm not here to give you guidance on what to do. That's for your own legal counsel to do. I'm not going to do that here. I can't do that. It's, it wouldn't be appropriate. It just wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, if you're in fact affected by this, I am not. Um, but if you are, uh, I'm not in a position to tell you what to do here. Uh, but I, I will say in the aggregate, I think there's a very little chance that this survives the courts. Uh, want to go to your questions here. People write in questions. You can go to jacobwold.org slash contact to do that with or without a donation. Donations can be made via Cash App at Real Jacob Wool. They can also be made at jacobwool.org slash podcast. If you are so inclined uh, as to use crypto, I, I don't prefer it, but there are ways if you send me an email that can be done. Uh, it can be done. I don't prefer it, but it can be done. And of course, I'm not a crypto person. I cash it out immediately. But um, it can be done. You just email jacob at jacobwool.org. It's my own private server. It's secure. And we can talk about that if you're interested. Okay, we go here to Austin, though. He writes in and he also sent a generous donation. Thank you, Austin. He says, hey, Jacob, I think viewers might be interested in your diet. What do you normally cook or eat out? Uh, when and what do you eat? The show has only been getting better, by the way. Your content, I can't get anywhere else. Well, thanks so much. I try my best here. And, you know, when I have to postpone the show like I did today or something, it's just, it's unfortunate, but sometimes you have to do it uh, based on, on the day job and all of that. So, I mean, people know for a long time, you know, trying to gain as much muscle as possible, basically force feeding myself. I, I'm really on more of a normal diet now. I probably eat 3,000 calories a day. I'm six foot four and say 230 pounds or so. So that's an appropriate number of calories. Maybe it's a little more than 3,000, give or take. It's protein centric. Um, and I like red meat, but I also eat chicken and stuff like that. So every meal is kind of protein centric, three meals a day, pretty normal. Um, so nothing too crazy. I have not had to continue to force feed to, to keep the muscle on. Maybe I've lost five pounds or something from my peak. I think my peak was 247. I didn't really feel good at that weight. It was too much. It was just too much. It was harder to, to be cardio effective and all of that, just walking around and, and being as combat effective as possible. And also I, did, I was I would having to get my suits all redone and that didn't really seem like a, a an entertaining or, or, or financially interesting prospect, frankly. So that's what I do. Um, as far as cook or eat out, I mean, I, I cook a lot. I'll order stuff in. 
couple times a week and I'll eat out probably a couple of times a week. It, it, so it depends, but I, I cook, I find myself cooking a lot. Um, I, unfortunately moving, I, I do have an electric stove. It's a very high end electric stove. So, you know, it, it, it actually works very well, even with cast iron, it works really well. Um, I would of course prefer a gas stove, I think, but, uh, all other things being equal, it works fine. It's easy. It's much easier to clean than a gas stove. Uh, with all the you know metallurgy on on top of the the, the racks and, and the stands and all that stuff, uh, but of course I don't think gas stove should be banned. I'm just saying it it works pretty well. If you have a real high end electric stove, I was afraid of it at first. I thought, oh God, I'm going to have to run the gas line and 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 put in a new stove, and it, it works okay. It works fine. Uh, so I cook a lot of steak and lamb, and that's kind of the the center of what I eat. And um, you know, sometimes other things. So it's a mix of that and, and I eat pretty normally, but, um, I don't know. I'll talk more about it, I guess later, but that's some, some level of detail there. I want to talk to you about, um, in this segment here, um, what I'd like to discuss. So, um, somebody says, why don't we cry non-natives pay capital gains tax? What's the, what's the, dictionary answer what's the real answer they just say tax exempt because they, they're not you know citizens residents and so there's all kinds of exemptions for them and uh you know they just say leave it to their home country uh okay i want to talk to you the 60 minutes two weeks ago ran this story about how we're entering the sixth mass extinction uh, take a listen this is just like the 30 second teaser for for the whole story they did it was like a 14 minute you know kind of full feature length uh Report by 60 Minutes Center. Take a listen. Last month, the nations of the world agreed to save nature from mass extinction. But the UN had this meeting in 2010, and not one goal was met. Leading biologists warn that time is running out to slow the rate of extinction around the globe. Which is exactly why I and the vast majority of my colleagues think we're we've had it, that the next few decades will be the end of the kind of civilization we're used to. So that man speaking there at the end, and in fact, the main so-called expert that was featured in the 60 Minutes story, the foundation of the story, is a person named Dr. Paul Ehrlich. And I say doctor with a great degree of skepticism. Uh, what's the reality of it? Well, he's an entomologist. He came up through academia as a researcher of butterflies. So this is a man, very creepily, whose expertise in reality is of insects. Now, like many so-called uh, futurists, he saw an opportunity to become famous, to make a lot of money, by making a bold and, as these things often are, apocalyptic projection of the future and really promote himself. Like Al Gore. I mean, Al Gore today is much better known for his global warming nonsense than I think he's known for being the vice president. I think so. I mean, certainly with young people, but but with, I think, with everyone. Vice presidents a lot of times are not, you know, well-known 30 years later. You You don't think about their names very often. I think Al Gore is much better known for his global warming nonsense. Well, Paul Ehrlich was the same way. He's best known for his 1968 book called The Population Bomb. 
what does the population bomb claim? Well, in essence, it claims that we're headed for an apocalyptic future driven by the fact that we just have too many people. And here's a clip of Paul Ehrlich uh, when he was on the circuit, still promoting this book very actively, discussing all of this. And he sort of lays out the, the central thesis of the population bomb, the book that had been released uh, just a year and a half or so before this interview. What disasters do you see if we don't change our ways? Well, we're losing 10 to 20 million people a year to to starvation right now. That's a big disaster already, and that will inevitably increase. It may not increase next year. We're speaking worldwide. Worldwide. Oh, and in the United States, too. Mm -hmm. We are very close to a famine disaster in the United States because of the things that air pollution is doing to change the weather. We have entrained a series of weather changes, which now look like we may have a very serious, very large weather change in the United States, which, of course, will hurt our agriculture tremendously. So we're close to famine in the United States, too. We're very close to a worldwide plague that could kill virtually everybody we just missed in 1967. And this is something that concerns biologists a great deal. The, the denser, the larger, the weaker the population gets, the more we are set up for a virus that will just run through, and it will be so long for three-quarters of the people. And, of course, every person you add to the planet increases, and, and every bit of pollution you add also, increases the chances of a thermonuclear war and makes its results worse. Because the thermonuclear war, of course, would, would wreck the... How does that... How I mean, I just have to stop there. I normally like to just play these clips, but... How does every person's pollution have anything to do with increasing the odds of a thermonuclear war? How are those things in any way related? How does smog affect the prospect of a thermonuclear war? Ecology in a way that we haven't managed uh, with our with our little efforts so far. So that uh, the disaster will take the form of famine, plague, or war. They're mankind's old uh, companions, fundamentally. You just got to remember this. There's no way out of the arithmetic. There will never be 7 billion people in the year 2000. The only question is why won't there be 7 billion people in the year 2000? Will it be because we've had so many people die off of those things, or will it be because we have managed to bring the birth rate down a long way? I believe so. So he says there will never be 7 billion people in the year 2000. It's just impossible. It's the carrying limit of the world. Uh, This expert in butterflies, uh, this insect researchers telling us it's just not possible. It's not possible. Well, let's continue. Let's listen to, to, he begins to say what what the prospects are for us. Somewhere you have given 1972 as a point of no return. Yeah, it's a point of no return because if we don't have a responsible government by then, we got to wait four more years before we can get one. Uh, And that's just too long to wait. In other words, because of all the lag times and so on, if we can't get moving in that direction in 1970 and get a president by 1972, uh, then it's just hopeless. So uh, uh, my own feeling is that that that's, that should be our watershed. If in 1972 things are still being run the same old way, then at least as far as I'm concerned, the ball game will be over. Uh, I got to point out that many of my colleagues think it's already over. I'm I'm considered a pessimist by the public and an optimist by many of my colleagues. So, and the future will tell if there is a future. That's right. So you see here. Just like we see today, you you, you realize the more you study politics, there really is nothing new under the sun. And you realize, he says here, what's the solution to all this? In in basic terms, well, the solution is we have to get Richard Nixon out of the White House. Well, of course, every part of this turned out to be wrong. We did have 6.8 billion people in the year 2000, which he said was never possible. We have 8 billion today, and it's very much possible world has not uh, suffered nuclear apocalypse because of it. And listen to all these things. He says famine, plague, war, uh, nuclear apocalypse. I mean, the only thing he didn't say was a meteor would hit and destroy the earth because we have too many people. 
He maybe should have thrown that in too. Or just said a flood. That's what they shifted to. They just, they shifted. They said, listen, this stuff about famine and stuff, people are fat on average. This isn't working anymore. We got to end the, 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 the war on starvation stuff. What should we say instead? And they said, well, let's go to our biblical roots here. Let's go to the oldest story around, the oldest archetypical kind of disaster around, and let's make it like Noah's Ark, and let's just make it a big flood. So that's what they've shifted to now. It's the, 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 we're all going to be underwater. We're going to have to get on an ark like Noah's Ark, and we're gonna ha- it's going to be a flood which is the oldest archetypical sort of or archetypal uh, disaster is a flood. And so they've shifted to flood from starvation. Um, It's just amazing. And the solution, he says, is, well, you have to get Nixon out of the White House. Of course, Nixon went on in 1972 in that election to win 49 states in uh, the the greatest landslide ever uh, in American politics or any politics with regard to legitimate elections. So he was wrong in all regards. But what should these Democrats do when they get off into office in 1972, which he says is the dropping off point, the point of no return, the point at which uh, the world is just going to end? Well, he lays out what he thinks that they should do. And let's listen carefully to these policy solutions, these policy prescriptions that this butterfly scientist is giving us. Given the population explosion let alone in this country, what can the government, what ought the government to do about this? Well, what it ought to do is this. The first thing, you, want, you don't want to put, I, I'm against government interference in our lives. You want to minimize that. So the very first thing the government should do is try and take the pressure off to reproduce. There's a lot of pressure in our society now to reproduce. If you're single, people try and push you into getting married. You know, uh, you, your wife, you have a, a, a bachelor over and your wife says, gee, shouldn't I have a nice girl over? The idea is, you know, nobody should escape. So there's pressure to get married. Young couples, if they don't have children, people say, gee, they must be sterile. They never say, gee, maybe they like uh, good wine and going to the theater and so on. They prefer that to scraping diapers. So there's pressure to have children. I mean, listen to this kind of discussion. Maybe they like uh, good wine and going to the theater instead of scraping diapers. I mean, think of the levels of satanic vanity involved with that sort of comparison. I mean, first as though it's an either or. I mean, what are you going to do? Just, you know, drink Bordeaux and and watch musicals when you're 80 years old? I mean, who, who's going to schlep you around in your wheelchair to take you to the musicals if you haven't had any children? You don't have any grandchildren. I mean, th- this sort of thinking is just, it, it's just vain and, and so self-destructive beyond any level of comprehension, but he, he keeps going. So that's the first thing. So the first thing that should happen is that the president ought to say from now here on out, no intelligent, patriotic American family uh, ought to have more than two children, preferably one, if you're starting a family now. Not, not any law, but just say this is what responsible people do. He ought to make the FCC see to it that large families are always treated in a negative light on television wherever they appear. He got that. I mean, it wasn't done through the FCC, but through back channels, through things like the Norman Lear Foundation in Hollywood. Yes, large families are demonized in Hollywood. Absolutely demonized. I mean, the only time, you know, a large family is is portrayed in in Hollywood, on television, in theaters now, it's never, hey, look at our large, well-functioning family. No, it's like, you know, some goofball movie like Cheaper by the Dozen, 
where you can watch it and laugh and say, whoa, 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 you know, look, spaghetti's flying onto the ceiling and this person's slipping down the stairs and bonking his head. But OK, yeah, and you leave the theater, you say, OK, I'm glad I don't have that. Or you have, you know, a, a TLC show where some lunatics have 42 children or something. You know, I mean, it's some crazy thing like that or or Octomom. But you don't have anything promoted where it's just like, no, we've got five kids and we're happy and the household functions well. And and I know many of these kinds of people, fewer and fewer as time goes on, but it's not something that is portrayed. And it's not exactly through FCC edict, because of course things moved to cable and it wasn't exactly relevant, but uh, cable and now the internet and all of that, but but he's getting his way and he keeps going here. There ought to be a tremendous amount of television time devoted to spot commercials, the sort we've had against smoking, uh, but the ones in the middle, say in the middle of Beverly Hillbillies, you get a scene which shows Los Angeles in the smog and it just says, this city has a fatal disease, it's called overpopulation, and so long. Uh, now, that sort of campaign, you could, you could have a census, a sample census, which would see whether that was having a desired effect. If that didn't, you could move to giving women bonuses for not having babies. That almost certainly would do the job. And they have done this. I mean, think about the push to get women into colleges, get women into the workforce, get women in, and don't just send them to college, but keep them in college. Get them getting master's degrees and PhDs. Send them to law school. I mean, keep them in college so long bury them in so much debt that they're not going to be out of college until, say, age 28. Then they're going to have so much debt that there's no chance they're ever going to be able to even go on a date, much less start a family. So they've done that in effect. It's not just a bonus, but it's, it's, it's beyond that. It's well beyond a bonus. If that didn't have the effect, then you could move to changing the tax structure. Uh, so that people who had the money and had the children paid for the children. In other words, you would increase taxes on people with children rather than decrease them, since they, when they have the children, they require more services. If that doesn't work, uh, then you'll have the government legislating the size of the family. And people say, oh, that's impossible. Government can never intrude and tell you how many children to have. Well, I got news. You know, it intruded a long time ago and told you how many wives you can have. Uh, and there's not the slightest question that if we don't get the population under control with voluntary means, that in the not-too-distant future, the government will simply tell you how many children you can have and throw you in jail if you have too many. So that's what he recommends. Throw you in jail if you have too many. Like, you know, the one-child policy in China. And what's remarkable about all of this is that the greatest challenges that the world is facing today have to do with centralized systems all over the world. And in fact, systems here in the U.S. that are not so centralized, which basically followed this advice. And so what did you have take place. Well, you look at basic demographics. Now, we know about China's problem where they had the one-child policy for 27 years or something. Now they're, they don't have it and they're begging people to have children. But when you are a single child and your spouse is a single child and everyone you've ever known is a single child, all of a sudden saying, have more kids is not so intuitive. When every single reasonable uh, reasonably available home in the country is built for a single child family. It's not so easy. It's a cultural moray. It's a situation of fertility. And oh, by the way, when they required the one child policy, people killed off girls. So now you have uh, with female infanticide. So now you have far more men than you have women. And so uh, not exactly going to be able to fix that problem quickly. I mean, you have just basic inefficiencies issues where, you know, nine women can't have one baby in a month. It's just, it's, it's a problem of, of demographics that they've created, but it's not merely a problem in China. In the U.S., it's a bit more nuanced 
where you have a situation where, of course, we know you have the silent generation and then you have the baby boomers. And, you know, talking about things in terms of these generations, people make different definitions in terms of when does this one start? When does this one end? Is somebody on the borderline? So it becomes tough. But you have the silent generation. And let's say they give birth to somebody my dad's age. He's 62. So he's right on the line, but he's a boomer technically, I, I, I would think. So um, or he'll be 62 this year. So he would be right on the line. And um, he's right on the line of Gen X. My mom is most decidedly Gen X. So she, my mom is born, say, the year of this clip, 1970. So she's, she's um, Gen X, certainly. Now, what happens is um, the boomers are um, a large population on average. That's a large group of people. Uh, and they give they give rise to another large generation, the millennials. So on average, that's what happens. You know, uh, is is that the large generation creates another large generation? Well, then you have the Gen Xers. They're a smaller generation, and they give rise to a smaller generation, mostly the Zoomers, the Gen Zers, the Zoomers. And so, a lot of the problems that we have in the world today. Uh, are based around the fact that that the Zoomers are just a small population. There aren't very many of them. In fact, if, if you look at like the the rise of like the manosphere, which can be useful for some people, but as George Bruno, a friend of mine, says, it's not a place that you want to take up camp and stay permanently. If there's something for you to learn there, go and learn it, and then and then you know get on with your life. Don't don't sit there and don't uh, hang out forever. Well, you look at like the problems in the dating market. Who is complaining most about problems in the dating market? Who's having the most problems? It's Gen Xers. They have a high divorce rate. They have a high problem rate of problems of all sorts. And it's the Zoomers with incels and this thing and all this, the the trends they talk about. I mean, I I don't want to sloganeer the problems here. They're more complicated than that. But a lot of those problems are, are, in my view, born out of the fact that these are just small generations. So people might overlook a compatibility issue with a prospective partner that they otherwise wouldn't overlook besides the fact that there just aren't enough people to choose from. Now, if you live in a city center, if you're around uh, an area that's got a tremendous number of people your age, like, say, the Washington, D.C. metro area, a lot of Gen Zers here, a huge amount of choice, but not so in much of the country. There's just not a lot of choices. Same problem that the Gen Xers have had getting together with people they wouldn't get together with because statistically there were just fewer people to choose from. That's a theory of mine. It's not in any way scientifically proven or anything like that. But but you don't have enough Zoomers. That's an issue you have in the labor force today. You go out and, and you try to hire a, a secretary for 55 grand or 65 grand. You want a good-looking 24-year-old female secretary or a receptionist. Whatever happened to a receptionist? You know, somebody that takes the inbound calls and routes the calls and somebody who sits at the front desk and routes the calls and they're good looking and they cheer up the whole office. And it's, uh, you know, you have a really good looking receptionist and good looking secretaries and it just has, uh, it raises this, the level of joy in the office overall. That hardly exists any longer. You can't hire them. Either all the women in that population in that city are just overqualified They've paid too much for college. They've sat around in college too much. Whether they're actually overqualified or not, on paper, they're overqualified. They won't even apply for that job or they don't want to do it. Uh, Or there just aren't enough of them. And so what you're going to see is 
that policies, which in which in theory would be good in a lot of ways, like say an immigration moratorium, I mean, clearly you have to stop illegal immigration. You have to stop open borders. Nobody disputes that. I don't think that's that's even halfway reasonable. The left disputes it. Nobody on the right disputes it. But then there's discussion over whether you can have an immigration moratorium cutting back immigration. Now, we, now we've had a cutback in legal immigration since about 2018. It has continued under Joe Biden because Joe Biden is beholden to organized labor. And organized labor is not too keen on tons of H-1B workers coming into the country who aren't going to be paying union dues or H-2Bs or others. You know, the nurses unions don't want tens of thousands of nurses coming in from the Philippines necessarily when they're not going to be paying the dues and they're going to be temporary and all of this. And so organized labor doesn't allow immigration numbers to increase. But I'm here to tell you, it, it seems very unrealistic to me that we're going to be able to have anything like a moratorium on legal immigration, given the fact that there just aren't enough Gen Z to fill in the job openings, the entry-level job openings, and then move up the ranks to fill the jobs that are taken by millennials now. I don't see how that's going to be demographically possible. We're going to have a, a much less severe version of what Canada has. There just aren't enough people. They had a, they had a, a baby decline in the early 70s, and, and it was really bad. And that's why Canada has to import all of the Indians and all of the Chinese and the Bangladeshis. Otherwise, there'd be nobody to work. And, and perhaps more importantly, nobody to consume anything that's domestically made and sold in, in Canada. So it's a major problem. This kind of thinking that was propounded by this Paul Ehrlich, who is still, as we pointed out at the beginning of the segment, held up as an expert by 60 Minutes, promoted heavily held up as brilliant, celebrated in a place like Washington, D.C. It's had a serious cost to the country. He was not in isolation. He's the poster child, but he wasn't the only one. And these policies came into play and they've wrecked the country. They've wrecked the demographics of, of the United States. The only chance for this is you're going to have to majorly incentivize uh, the, the birth of, of, of children among Zoomers. Zoomers are going to have to somehow figure out a way to uh, get women out of these kind of low productivity jobs and get them having children or else the country's going to slide off a demographic cliff. And what I'm proposing is not that it's apocalypse. It's not apocalypse. It's worse than apocalypse in a certain sense because it's just malaise. You just live in a boring, non-dynamic country where you have to import tons of people from India to do the most basic of jobs because you don't have any people. You become Canada, which is the worst country in Northern America. Yes, it's worse than Mexico in a lot of ways. It's not even entertaining. The weather's bad. They have no labor force. Mexico is going to be a much more dynamic country than Canada. It already is, but it's going to be a much more dynamic country as it becomes the regional base of mid-end, not low-end, but mid-end manufacturing labor for North America. It's already happening. It's already in play, but it's going to continue. Uh, going to the comments here before we wrap up, I've never heard the climate people talk about indoor and outdoor pollution of marijuana. Yeah, absolutely. Go to any housing project, walk through, and uh, you will find that it just reeks of marijuana at all hours of the day. They went from ghost towns like those in rural Japan where the government has to give away homes. Yeah. Your dad gives me Gen X vibes. He's much more savvy than a boomer. Yeah, I mean, he's really on the older end of Gen X, really. I mean, it's it just depends where you count the line. Um, 
think the primary issue is selectivity. Gen Zers are primed by social media to seek companions that don't exist. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, you'll have a, a, a woman who's, not to be crass here, but you'll have a woman who's a six. And what she expects out of a man is just, is just not something that's realistic. Oh, he's got to be over six foot tall. And he's got to make more than $200,000 a year. And he's got to be charming. And he's got to be nice to me. And he's got to have uh, this sort of a predisposition. And you say, well, and he's got to be this race or that race. And you say, well, how many of those are there in your town? Oh, there's two. Oh, there's 16. In fact, there's a tool online that allows you to demographically calculate, you know, the female, like how many of these people are there? Female dating expectations, like a calculator online. I forget the domain. And you figure out, oh, there's like eight of those guys and they've got their pick of the litter. Uh, so toots, you're going to have to lower your standards here. That's not going to happen. You know, you're living in a reality show, bachelor, you know, bachelorette, whatever fantasy. It's just not going to work. Um, would you happen to have a book recommendation list anywhere? I don't have a list online. I ought to just publish another one, but, um, maybe I will do that. I've given recommendations in other episodes, but maybe I'll consider that. I'll consider that. Somebody email me a reminder and, and maybe I can find the time to put together a list. Jacob at jacobbull.org. Of course, you can donate to the show. Uh, you can go to Cash App, Real Jacob Bull, or jacobbull.org slash podcast. If you'd like to support, I appreciate all the support. You keep this show going. Hopefully, we can be back on Twitter very soon and get this audience and get the show really roaring. That would be the hope. I don't know what the delay is. I don't know what the holdup is. I appreciate all of those who are tagging Elon Musk and tagging at Twitter safety and um, advocating for me. I think it helps. Um, maybe, you know, tag at ALX as well because they seem to follow his recommendations on the topic. I don't know. Um, if you feel like it, it's nothing urgent. It's not an urgent call to action. I just appreciate it. Thanks for joining today. This episode will be up on podcast apps everywhere shortly uh, after we finish here. We'll be back Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern time, and I'll see you then.